how do we know, or how can we tell, when God is blessing what we are doing? Or conversely, how can we know, how can we tell if we are fighting against God's will? Is it when things are going well and everything is easy, is it then that we know that we are doing God's will? Or is it when obstacles and discouragements abound, nothing is easy and everything is hard, is it then that we realize that we are out of step with God's purpose? Well, I think we can clearly see that this passage, reading about Paul's life and ministry, Scripture warns us against such a simplistic calculus. God willed Paul to testify to Jesus both before the Jews and the Gentiles. And for doing God's will, Paul was rejected, assaulted, and imprisoned. God willed for Paul to testify before Caesar. But Paul's pathway to Rome was through storm, through hunger, and through shipwreck. And that's the first thing we uh, take note this morning. Hard providence. Hard providence. Now, you remember that Paul was finally able to present his case to the authorities before Festus and Agrippa after more than two years of awaiting judgment. And Festus, he was a Roman governor representing expertise in Roman law. And Agrippa, a man who was familiar with Jewish customs and law, they heard Paul's case and it was clear to them that Paul was innocent both in the eyes of the Roman law and in the eyes of the Jewish law. And so they declared Paul's innocence. But Paul, you see, had appealed to Caesar when it seemed as though the authorities were denying justice in order to curry favor with the Jews. But since Paul had already made an appeal to Caesar, the process now had to be followed through. So even though Paul was declared innocent both in the eyes of the Roman law and the Jewish law, Paul remained a prisoner and he was put under the authority and the care of the Roman centurion Julius who was tasked to transfer Paul to Rome. And so from Caesarea, they boarded an Alexandrian grain ship leaving for Italy. Uh, in those days, uh, Rome depended heavily on Egypt for its grain, and ships leaving the harbors of Egypt from Alexandria, for example, would carry the grain and sail to Italy. But they would do this during spring when the weather was mild and the winds blew in from the south helping their journey. But in the fall and the winter, the wind directions changed and the sea became very treacherous, making winter a very dangerous time to set sail. Uh, one New Testament scholar, he added up all of Paul's many goings and, and comings, and he estimate, estimated that Paul had traveled some 3,500 miles in these waters. In other words, Paul was intimately familiar with these waters. And so Paul, when 
he realized that, that this Alexandrian ship was about to set sail against harsh weather, Paul offered his experienced advice to wait out the winter. But the ship's owner and the pilot, uh, you see, uh, because Rome was so dependent upon grain import from Egypt, uh, Emperor Claudius had offered a significant financial incentive to the ships that would bring in grain during winter. And so the owner and the pilot of the ship were lured by the promise of profit, and they set sail against Paul's advice. And at first, the gentle south wind seemed a good omen, and it seemed a blessing from the gods. But very quickly, things changed, because in verse 14 we read, but soon a tempestuous wind, and the Greek word behind the tempestuous wind is that tuphonikos. It's the word from which we get typhoon. Uh, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, and the Greek word uh, behind Northeaster is a hurakulon, uh, from uh, the word from which we get hurricane. So we are not talking about some gentle breeze in the air. Uh, they set out thinking that this uh, gentle south wind was a good omen, but uh, soon they were overtaken by uh, powerful, vicious winds. And so for the next 14 days, uh, things went from bad to worse. And the interesting thing is that the things went from bad to worse, not only for the pagan passengers, the pagan crew, who did not know the God of Israel, who did not worship the God of Israel, but things went from bad to worse for Paul for Luke, for Aristarchus, men who knew and worshipped the Lord, men who on that very occasion were on the ship in their heartfelt obedience to the Lord. And for them, just as it did for the pagan crew and the passengers, things went from bad to worse. I remember seeing some news reports of modern, a modern cruise ship uh, just struggling against uh, a storm in the ocean. And think about that. You know, modern cruise ships are built with the most advanced material with the latest technology, and yet they are still at the mercy of angry waves. Can you imagine what sort of danger Paul and his passengers were facing? Paul's ship was in grave danger. The waves threw the ship's boat against the hull, threatening to break the hull. And so they secured the boat with great difficulty. And then they had to tie ropes underneath the ship. They passed rope under the ship to, to, to hold the hull together from, to keep it from breaking apart. And as the winds drove the ship south, the sailors feared running aground on the Sirtis. Sirtis is where you find two shallow, sandy gulfs uh, off the coast of Libya, where many ships were lost in those days. And so the sailors, they lowered a series of anchors to drag on the seabed in order and hoping to slow down the ship. And apparently they have found wreckages where they found series of anchors in line, first anchor, 
second anchor, third anchor, fourth anchor, and then the wreckage of the ship. Uh, so that was the practice of those days. If the winds are driving you, you'd, you let down a series of anchors, hoping that the drag would slow down the ship. But as you can see here, nothing worked. Nothing helped. So the next day, they jettisoned the cargo. And the day after that, the tackle, they threw away the tackle. And I think that gives us some indication of the hopelessness that has set on them. You know, you need tackle for sailing to navigate. <laughs> but the sailors are now thinking, there is no hope for us. And the only thing that they were trying to do was to lighten the ship. And so we read in verse 20, When neither sun nor stars appear for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So for 14 days, they shivered without food. I mean, how could you cook anything in such a time? And who would have an appetite to eat? For 14 days, they shivered without food, and I imagine they didn't get much sleep those 14 days. And they gave up all hope. Now let's pause here and think about this for a moment. God wants Paul in Rome. So why make it so hard? You remember when the prophet Jonah, he heard a call from the Lord to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, how Jonah hated the idea of God's grace being proclaimed to the Gentiles, and he ran in the opposite direction, and he got on a boat, and he was thrown into a powerful storm. But not Paul. Paul heard the Lord's call to go proclaim the gospel, and Paul wholeheartedly and sincerely wanted to do what the Lord commanded him to do. You see, his duty was his delight and choice. And so Paul, with obedience and with sincerity, was doing everything that the Lord had called him to do, and the Lord wanted him in Rome, so why does God make it so hard? Or is this the devil's work? Well, the answer is yes. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, Paul writes this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ had been branded on Paul, on his heart and on his life. And what that meant for him was to live out and experience the death of Christ, so that the life of the risen Lord might be made known and made known as powerful through his weakness and through his uh, suffering. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul continues. And by the way, Paul is writing this against the backdrop of uh, the, the men who claim themselves to be super apostles. 
And they came with a resume to the Corinthians. You see? You see how great we are? You see the success that we have accomplished? You should listen to us. But Paul writes to them, he says, his resume, he writes, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in affliction, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. That was Paul's resume. (laughs) You see, there were these so-called super apostles. Look at how great we are. Don't you just want to listen to us? Don't you just want to learn from us? Paul, on the other hand, says, my resume is how much I have suffered for Christ. You see, God sent the good news of his son dressed in weakness. And God did this, and God still does this, to humble those who consider themselves wiser than God. You know, you listen to the gospel, it's to those who consider themselves wise and to those who have not uh, attained true knowledge of themselves, the gospel sounds like gibberish. And they scoff it, uh, scoff at it, they dismiss it. And those who consider themselves wise before God, the gospel is indeed words of foolishness and they reject it. And yet for those who have come to see who God is and those who have come to see by God's self who they are, the gospel, the good news of Jesus comes to them dressed in weakness, but it is good news. It is the message of salvation. And so God hides the power of the risen Lord in the weakness of the message and in the weakness of his servants. And that's in part why, even though God wanted Paul in Rome, and even though uh, Paul is faithfully obeying the Lord, it must be a path of suffering and hardship. Because the gospel can only come dressed in weakness. Because through the weakness and frailty of Paul, the power of the risen Lord may be uh, declared. So it is, yes, it's God making things so difficult for Paul. But at the same time, Romans chapter 8, 35, Paul asks this question, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? When Paul asks who, I think what he has in mind is that the evil one sometimes pours out his rage to impede the gospel and to destroy the elect if he only could. Uh, The book of Job, the sufferings of Job are very instructive, isn't it? You You read about how Job suffers greatly. And on the surface of it, uh, Satan comes to God and says, you know, the only reason Job loves you is because you have blessed him. In other words, Satan is saying to God, the only reason Job loves you is because you have bribed him. His faith is shallow. That's one challenge. 
But at the same time, what Satan is saying to God is this. Who would love you? You're nothing. Who would ever in their right mind love you? The only reason anyone loves you is because you bribed them. You're not worthy of love. You're nothing. And it's that dynamic, both an assault on Job's faith, but more deeply, an assault on God's character, his worthiness. And out of that, the Lord allows Satan to do wicked and evil deeds. And I think that's very instructive for us as we think about, you know, why is it that path of obedience is often so difficult? On the one hand, there is the, the sovereign purpose of God in which he makes his power known through our weakness so that his good news is proclaimed in what can people consider as foolishness. But on the other hand, there is the rage of the evil one assaulting not only the believer but also God's worthiness. But against all such attacks, God prevails. And against all such attacks, God's people, by the grace of God, find an anchor in the storm. And that brings us to the second observation. Faith sustains. Faith sustains against hard providence. I don't know about you, but I hate it when someone tells me, I told you so. And that's what it sounds like Paul is doing, isn't it? Uh, Verse 21. Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. You know, by this time, Paul, um, he spent a sleepless 14 days. Probably he is exhausted and he, has had, he hasn't had anything to eat. And I think we can forgive him if he was a little bit cranky. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Because you see that Paul's in, uh, interest was not to gloat over them. But his intention was to encourage them. Verse 22, Paul says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And so Paul reminds them of his past counsel, which was ignored, but which proved true, so that his fellow passengers may now pay attention to what he says to them now. So verses 23 and 24, Paul tells them, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. But note this. Before they were saved, Paul encouraged them. So in verses 34 and 35, Paul tells them, Not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And... Before they were saved, notice what Paul did. When he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And again, Paul himself 
had gone two weeks without food and little sleep. But while everyone had lost hope, Paul gave thanks. Have you noticed how in the Bible, uh, thanksgiving often comes before deliverance? Uh, If you have ever any questions about this, read through the Psalms. How often the psalmist cries about some deeply troubling circumstances, and yet before the deliverance comes, the, the psalmist gives thanks. Why? Why is that? Well, giving thanks before deliverance, that's faith at work. You see, a faith that stands not on the shifting circumstances of the moment, but faith that stands on God's unchanging character, His goodness and His promises. So giving thanks before deliverance is a sign of faith at work. And giving thanks to God before deliverance also has the power to put things into perspective. The storm is raging. All hope is Lost, But Paul gave thanks to God who created the storm and the waves. You see, the storm and the waves cannot alter God's plans, not even one bit. And even the storm and the waves, they serve God's purpose. And that's where giving thanks amidst trials help us to see things in perspective. You see, Jesus, you remember, Jesus once still the storm when his disciples cried out. Now, Jesus doesn't still the storm here. Jesus doesn't always calm every storm. But his power and his love for his people remain unchanged. And that is why you and I can press on with faith in the Lord amidst hard providence. And notice what happens. Paul, he gives thanks, and we see that just as Paul said, the crew and the passengers were spared, and not one soul was lost. And again, uh, there is an ongoing point that Luke is making throughout uh, the books of Luke and Acts. On the one hand, Luke is writing to document how every authority that examined Paul found Paul innocent. But another thing that Luke is documenting is that Paul is a faithful witness to the divine revelations given to him. And just as God revealed to him, just as God let him know that every soul will be saved, and just as Paul faithfully proclaimed those words, his words are proved to be trustworthy, and he is proven to be once again a faithful, trustworthy witness to the revelation given to him. So first, hard providence. Second, faith sustains. And third, a strong anchor, a strong anchor. We often think that God is blessing us when things go well, 
And we often think that God is against us when difficulties abound. Well, I think sometimes that is true. Sometimes it is true that God blesses us with open doors and with ease, smooth path when we are doing His will. And sometimes when you find yourself running into a wall, it's probably a good time to reassess and think again. So it is true sometimes that when things are going well, God's blessing is upon us. And when things are not going well, we are striving against God's will. But we can see here that the life of faith is often encumbered with hindrances. And why is that? It's because God is not so much interested in what He can accomplish through us as He is interested in what He can accomplish in us. I think we always prefer performance over character. And I think in our minds, in, in, in our heart of heart, we tend to think of ourselves as the heroes of our life story, if not the heroes of God's plans. And so we are keenly interested in figuring out what great things God is going to accomplish through us. Well, that's the Lord's prerogative. But I think we sometimes forget, or perhaps we often forget, that God is not so much interested in what He can get out of you or how He can do great things through you, but God is more interested in kind of persons that He's forming you to be. You see, that is why often the faith of life is encumbered with trials and afflictions and hindrances. Because what God desires are faith in adversity, hope in darkness, and love in hardship. That's what God desires. Consider Jesus. No one understood God's will better than Jesus. No one so truly lived according to God's will as Jesus did. But Jesus suffered and died. You see, for Jesus, suffering was his path to glory. Suffering in which he learns obedience. Suffering in which he grows in faithfulness. And for Jesus, death came before resurrection. And have you noticed how that has been also one of the constant theme of Luke's gospel and Acts? What is true of Jesus must also be true of us. What happened to Jesus must happen also to us. As Jesus was, Jesus was so we are, and as Jesus is, so we will be. Just as Jesus' path to glory was through suffering, and just as death came before resurrection, so our path to glory is through suffering 
And even for us, death comes before resurrection. And that brings us to a closing. It may be that you, some of you, are in fact facing a hard providence in your life. And if you are, let me remind you that the Savior who carries you through, the Savior who cares for you, is one who knows what it's like to suffer in faithfulness. Jesus is with you. And if you are being reminded here, and if you are being mindful that you have not responded well to hardship, that you have not responded to the afflictions and trials of life with faith, with hope, and with love, let me say this to you, beloved. Don't let grief and regret cast a shadow over your heart. You see, Jesus, Jesus endured hardship with wisdom and courage. Jesus never wavered. He, Jesus, trusted, and Jesus loved, and Jesus conquered, and Jesus did it all for you. And that righteousness, that accomplishment of Jesus, in which he endured faithfully, in which he persevered, in which he glorified God, that righteousness, that accomplishment are not counted as your very own. That is what it means to be in Jesus. So if you are being mindful this morning that you have not responded well to your trials and to your afflictions, but can I say this to you? Get over yourself and look to Jesus. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your instructions this morning, and we pray that your comfort and your peace may rest upon all your children today, here and elsewhere, who are suffering, who are facing hardship, who are weary, who are exhausted, that they may find hope and grace in their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And let us, we who have often stumbled in our afflictions, we who have often failed to respond to these trials with faith, may we find our justification, righteousness, and our boasting in Jesus Christ, who suffered and died and rose for us. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.